Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Gathering My Thoughts podcast. Uh, my name is Spencer, and I am here again with my friend Wyatt. How's it going? We are thriving. Good. Well, uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty uh, is finally, they're finally doing spoilers, and we get to see some of the cards, and that's going to be kind of the subject for today's episode. Wyatt and I are going to talk about probably our favorite handful, uh, or otherwise things that we think are worth mentioning, even after just the first uh, three days, I believe, of spoilers so far. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. should be a lot of fun. Um, but before we uh, get into that conversation, give us a second to gather our thoughts. All right, Wyatt. So we, we mentioned it already. We're going to talk about our favorite spoilers here from this um, Kamigawa set. I've personally been looking forward to this set for a long time. Um, anyone who's familiar with uh, the the show knows that the last several episodes, I've just been talking about Kamigawa and all the things I love about it. Um, but let's talk about your uh, favorite, uh, maybe, what, what what card are you like most excited about for this set? What card am I most excited about from the set? There are a lot of very, very exciting cards. This set is um, overall quite exciting. Um I think personally, the card that I am the most excited about is uh, the White Dragon from the Dragon Cycle. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if it's pronounced Ao or Ao, so we're just going to roll with whatever works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a cycle of legendary s- dragon spirits, just like there was in the original Kamigawa. And those were some of my favorite cards from original Kamigawa. Uh, what can I say? I love dragons. Um, their death triggers were all very interesting. Uh, if you've played Commander and you have not played against Kokosho, uh, you're, thank your playgroup. Yeah, you um, just have good friends. You have good friends. Kokosho is a nightmare to play against, so they're all quite good. Same thing with Yose. Thank your playgroup. Right. Um, but these ones are less um mean like less disrespectful i'm going to say <laughs> there are no yoseis and coco shows there are no yoseis no coco shows but they're all very interesting and they have modular death triggers yeah i think so i uh brought up on an earlier episode i sort of uh talked about what i expected these dragons to look like and i was way off super wrong but what we got is actually pretty exciting i think um, and you mentioned the modular death triggers. This is a, an element that we knew was going to be coming based on um, the announcements that we had heard before. Uh, and we already had the red one, but now we have white, black, and blue also. Yeah, we're, we have every color spoiled except for green. Right. Um, and so you said you like the white one. Is that right? I do like the white one. So, um, yeah, the, white, the two modes on the death triggers... Um, so it has flying because it's a dragon and vigilance. All of these dragons have another evergreen keyword attached to them other than flying. Um, the two triggers are uh, give each creature you control uh, two plus one plus one counters, which I think is the least interesting piece of text on the card. Um, and also uh, look at the top seven cards of your library. Put any number of non-land permanent cards with total mana value four or less from among them onto the battlefield. Then put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So this is exciting for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, five mana, five, four flying vigilant uh, attacker that replaces itself is pretty strong. Um, Even if you just get yourself one four drop, you're still getting 
pretty decent value. Turning your five mana threat into a four mana threat, what's a good four mana threat, right? Like Siege Rhino, there are some pretty high power four mana threats just throughout the history of Magic. So uh, for standard purposes, I think that that is very um, good. Um, the part that excites me the most is actually commander related because while I don't have, I like haven't worked out the combo, I know for a fact that there either is currently a combo with Ow the, the Dawn Sky or there will be in Magic's near future. Uh, that death trigger just, there is, there has got to be some way to put all of your library onto the battlefield with that deck trigger death trigger looping it in a mono white commander deck and that is glorious yeah the thing that i like about this dragon but really all of the dragons in this cycle is that so far they find a way to replace themselves or sort of pseudo replace themselves which is really strong but this one in particular it's really strong if you are ahead and really strong if you are behind Right, because like if you are behind on board and they get rid of your one threat that is this dragon, uh, then it can replace itself with another threat to sort of help you rebuild a little bit. But if you're ahead and you have a big all big army of creatures and they remove this, you can just give them all two plus one plus one counters and and um, continue to be ahead. Right, so it's advantageous in multiple parts of the game. Yes. Okay. Do you, uh, do you, should we mention the other three that we or the other two I guess that we got um, just for purposes of being thorough uh absolutely i think they're all very interesting so so the blue one is four blue blue for a six six dragon spirit with flying and ward three and it says when it dies you can choose to either return a non-land permanent with total mana value six or less to their owner's hands or excuse re excuse me return non target non-land permanents so any number of permanents with total mana value six or less um, to their owner's hands, or mill six cards, then return up to two instant and or sorcery cards from your graveyard to your hand. So either you sort of pseudo-cyclonic rift your opponent, or you get back um, some instants and sorceries from your graveyard. Yes. Um, it's very, again, it's good if you're ahead, good if you're behind. It's a threat that will just continue beating down on your opponent. Uh, and being hard to deal with um, if you're ahead and if you're behind and you can even kill it yourself and Cyclonic Rift your opponent's board state. Um, and if you get some other benefit out of killing your your poor innocent dragon, then um, <laughs> just gravy. Right? Yeah, it's a good way to sort of turn the tides, if you will excuse the water-themed pun. But then the black card, the black dragon, is three black black for a 5-5 five five with flying and menace. And when it dies, you can either choose uh, each opponent discards two cards and loses two life, or put a non-dragon creature from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control, you lose two life. So again, if you are uh, behind, you r return some sort of threat from the, the, the graveyard, from a graveyard, it doesn't say yours necessarily, or you could do that if you're ahead, I guess. Um, but yeah, you could also... Uh, target your opponent's hand to get rid of any sort of interaction or disruption or anything like that. Absolutely, yes. Uh, something that we've talked about outside of the podcast is how good that Black Dragon is with Soul Shift, a mechanic from previous Kamigawa. Yeah, it's really cool. I have mentioned before that I really love Soul Shift, even though it's a pretty bad mechanic. 
Um, but yeah, this does let you get into some soul shift loops that are not exactly infinite, but are kind of cool with like cards like Promised Kanushi. Yes. So, uh, so those are the dragons. I think I agree with you that the white one is the most interesting. Um, I'm I'm even concerned uh, about how strong that could potentially be in formats like Standard or Historic. But who knows? Maybe uh, we can see it in in Modern or other places. And certainly it'll it'll be a, it'll be a Commander card. So yeah. All right. Another um, card that we should probably talk about uh, because it's sort of the the most interesting kind of talking point for this set is Tamio Completed Sage. Yes. This card has obvious story relevance. An implication but as a planeswalker it's kind of interesting still um so let's read it and and talk about uh the card as well as you know some of the different story things about it so tamio completed sage is two and a blue a green and a hybrid phyrexian blue green for a five loyalty planeswalker tamio with an ability called completed that says that the Phyrexian, the hybrid Phyrexian uh, Simic uh, mana pip can be paid with green, blue, or two life. And if you pay the two life, then the Planeswalker enters the battlefield with two fewer loyalty counters. So that's a little bit complicated, but basically it's either five mana to enter with five loyalty or four mana and two life to enter with three loyalty. Yes. So then her plus one says tap up to one target artifact or creature. It does not untap during its controller's next untap step. Minus X, exile target non-land permanent with mana value X from your graveyard. Create a token that's a copy of that card. Or minus seven, create Tamio's Notebook, a legendary colorless artifact token with spells you cast cost two less to cast and tap, draw a card. Okay, kind of a lot there. Basically, yes. the plus one frosts an artifact or creature they they don't untap during the next untap step they tap them down um, sort of reminiscent of original tamio yes the minus x is sort of a weird reanimation spell where you exile something and get a copy of it which is also reminiscent of an old tamio ability and then the minus seven creates an artifact that makes your stuff cheaper and draws you cards which is interesting, it's not an emblem, it's an artifact. First first interesting thing. True. Second interesting thing, it is legendary, so you can't have multiples, which is probably a good thing. Um, but it's not really a game-winning ultimate. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's reminiscent to me of Tamio Field Researcher from oh, yeah. uh, Eldritch Moon. Yeah. Uh, where her ultimate um, gave you an emblem that was omniscience and drew three cards. This is like the most powered down version of that maybe ever, right? Yeah, where, to the point where we can still draw the the similarity. Like it's it it draws cards and um, reduces the co casting cost of your spells while happening to reference. Uh, Tamio's notebook, which is very similar to Tamio's journal, a card in that set. Right. So really, uh, like from a Vorthos perspective, really cool card. Yeah, really cool, really heartbreaking. Poor Tamio. It's true. I think that this is sort of the first of many of these kinds of cards. I think so too. You know, like we've had uh, before uh, all this Phyrexian stuff, the War of the Spark uh, 
story arc was kind of the big uh, thing that Wizards was working on. This is obviously the next thing they're going to be doing. The ne- the next big bad is going to be Phyrexia, but it's going to be Phyrexia turning all of the Planeswalkers into completed Phyrexian Planeswalkers. Yes. I'm planning on doing an episode with specifically about this whole concept, this like story idea and things that we're looking forward to it, um, with Preston, who you know, um, at a future date. Uh, but do you have any thoughts like initially about that? Um, about like the the story the arc. story arc. Yeah, um, I think it's very interesting. Um, so it's very interesting for the Phyrexians to choose Tamio as potentially their first completed planeswalker. Why would they choose the pacifist, um, moon interested scholar? Why would they pick her? Right. Um, and I've, I've seen a couple theories floating around online about how, um, Mirrodin now new Phyrexia has five moons and perhaps, uh, it has something to do with that. Maybe she was chosen specifically for that reason. Um, maybe it's because Tamio is just a well-respected planeswalker. Uh, it seems like no one really has any beef with her because why would you? She doesn't really do anything bad to anybody. Um, I have my theory that is pretty much 100% guaranteed to not be true is the Phyrexians want to mess with the Eldrazi because Tamio helped imprison Emrakul in the moon. I mean, that is an interesting point because theoretically, uh, also, have you read the um, the online like stories? I'm not up to date with those. That's okay. I would recommend them. They're pretty good. Um, but at, when they sort of reveal Tamio's transformation, um, they make a point of saying that like, she is now loyal to Phyrexia and willing to use all um, like resources at her disposal for the betterment of Phyrexia. Which, as you pointed out, one of those is like a scroll that can lock a, an otherworldly entity in the moon of an, another world. Yes. So, and, and like knowledge of Emrakul, the Eldrazi, and, and all that is really um, kind of interesting. I don't know if they'll go that direction because... We just went to Innistrad, for sure. example. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, uh, we already fought the Eldrazi. You know, who wants to bring those back so soon? But yeah, but yeah, really, that is a really interesting um, thought. I bet I hadn't thought about how uh, New Phyrexia has five moons. Um, I don't know what they'll do with that, really. But I also don't know what they'll do with that. But it's that there's something. Maybe they're going to make Phyrexian moons or something. Sure. Um, there's also the fact that. Um, Tamio is a planeswalker, and obviously that's like sort of the point. Like it could have maybe even been any planeswalker for, for that matter. But the ability to transport Phyrexian oil to pretty much any plane at pretty much any time, is a really interesting implication. Like maybe we won't be able to get rid of Phyrexia ever now. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite the interesting implication. Um, it's also interesting that we you know, we. We know pretty much for a fact, or we do know for a fact, again, haven't kept up with the story, that Tezzeret is working with the Phyrexians. He's working right. with the Praetors. Um, but he hasn't been completed. Right. That is interesting. He is, in some ways, he's like kind of like BYO completion because he is made of 
mostly entirely ethereum um but yeah i i thought about that actually that is an interesting point yeah i wonder why i hope that they'll give us some interesting explanation maybe he's the reason he's doing all of this is to bargain with the Phyrexians where he's basically a Phyrexian and try to become a Praetor-like entity himself. Oh, cool. I don't know. I don't know what Tezrit's ambitions are with this, but he kind of holds all the power. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Tezzeret, his card is actually an interesting one that I think we should bring up as well. All of the Planeswalkers are kind of interesting for the purposes of this conversation, but Tezzeret is two blue-blue for a four-loyalty Planeswalker. And his passive ability says the first activated ability of an artifact you activate each turn costs two less to activate. Plus one, draw two cards, then discard two cards unless you discard an artifact. Minus two, target artifact becomes an artifact creature. If it's not a vehicle, it has base power and toughness 4-4. And minus six, you get an emblem with whenever an artifact you control becomes tapped, draw a card. So this card seems to be less about the Vorthos and more about the mechanics of the set, especially because this set brings back vehicles as a strong theme. Yes. Um, I don't, I, I've been trying to figure out like what artifacts can really be broken by his passive ability where the first ability, the first artifact activated ability you activate costs two less. Does anything like come to your mind, like equipment maybe with high equip costs? Uh, Equipment with high equip costs is probably the one of the best things. Um, obviously, we're pro- we're not going to be doing any Colossus Hammer shenanigans with right, it. Right, because even, even that, it's like six mana to activate. It's still six mana, and you could always do that for zero. So Right, good point. Um, my first thought was like a, an awful, awful card from, I think, Mirrodin even called like tower of calamities where you can like pay like either six or eight mana and tap it to deal like 12 damage to something terrible (laughs) well i mean now it's only like four or six mana there you go yeah but um i think in general it's probably pretty good basalt monolith becomes a very powerful like a pretty powerful mana rock where it's essentially a worn power stone that enters untapped now um doesn't it just go infinite with itself now no, because it's only the first time each turn, oh, right? Oh, that's a good point. So they, they worded it very specifically to not go infinite with Basalt Monolith. Instead, they turn Basalt Monolith into a Warren Power Stone that accidentally goes infinite with something else. Yeah, well, the other thing is that this ability doesn't have a line of text that often comes with this kind of ability that says you you cannot reduce this activation to less than one. That's true. Like Zerda and a couple other cards have that rider on there. And so this, theoretically, with a uh, Grim Monolith, that's like Basalt Monolith, you can... Oh, no, that's that one has... It's four to untap, right? Yeah, you're right about that. Um, never mind. With the, Both of those cards still just activate or uh, tap for a lot instead of just some. Yes. Um, I guess you also can untap those cards relatively easily. Yeah. Like, like, don't they not untap during their untapped... that's that's correct so you can use them pretty easily um mana crypt it works with mana crypt too right i don't think so because well a mana vault is what you're thinking of i am thinking of mana vault and that ability is a triggered ability oh and so that one you won't reduce the cost on that dang it (laughs) yeah that is unfortunate but um yeah this seems like it's a difficult sort of egg to crack a little bit yeah there's there's something like even just getting a little bit of extra value with like your Strionic Resonator, for example, turning that into just 
two mana, one of your triggered abilities every turn will double or like zero mana to do that. It's pretty good, right? It, now, it doesn't work with Stryonic Resonator, right? No. Like, That's you not could what just, you're saying. You could just choose one of your different triggered abilities right. yeah, 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 and yeah. choose to double it for base, you know, zero mana every turn. Sure. Um, seems pretty decent. Like, it doesn't go infinite, but it sure generates a lot of value. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of like that, I think. Like, anyone can make an infinite combo with any number of things throughout Magic's history, but having things like this that are a little more dialed back uh, it just feels kind of refreshing, I think. Yes. <laughs> While we're talking about Planeswalkers, the third, or rather the fourth Planeswalker from the set was also spoiled. Um, and it's interesting. I want to talk to you about it. Absolutely, yes. So it's the Wandering Emperor, two white-white for a three-loyalty Planeswalker with Flash. Actually, this card has two passive abilities, which it might be does. the first time we've ever seen that. Yes. That's cool. It is really cool. So she has Flash. And also, as long as the Wandering Emperor entered the battlefield this turn, you may activate her loyalty abilities anytime you could cast an instant. Plus one, put a 1-1 one, one counter on up to one target creature. It gains first strike till the end of the turn. Minus one, create a 1-1, one, one, sorry, create a 2-2 two, two white samurai creature token with vigilance. And minus two, exile target tapped creature. You gain two life. So, talk to me about that. It's really interesting, but why is it interesting? Okay, so yeah, it's really interesting. Um, first of all, first ever Planeswalker that has Flash, and the second Planeswalker that can activate abilities whenever, like, at instant speed, even if only temporarily. Um, I think it's super interesting for a couple reasons. First, um, maybe one of the worst applications of the card is it's a combat trick that leaves behind this four loyalty um planeswalker that your opponents now are very incentivized to deal with because you will keep growing your board state furthermore they can't attack it this turn because it's a combat trick yeah i, I love that part of this card by the way yes um i think that the most um one of the more practical applications of this card um is you flash it in on your opponent's end step in a control deck and use immediately down tick and then down tick on your turn so that you have created um at instant speed four or four worth of stats um that are samurais with vigilance and then across you have two bodies across yeah. two bodies um with a planeswalker left behind um and i think that's just very powerful because and after that you can just start growing those samurai even if you have no other creatures with her plus one and they can be pretty aggressive too because they have vigilance yeah they, they have vigilance they're aggressive uh it like it can really go in any kind of deck because it protects the wanderer my, my brain is just laser focused on control where it's like you could just protect yourself because they have vigilance too yeah um it's i don't know it seems really strong and even at the end of the combat trick discussion like even if your opponents were atta to attack into you, you could use it as a settle the wreckage post-combat to exile one of your op opponent's tapped creatures with its last ability. Um, then you're le still left with the um, the one loyalty planeswalker, and then you gain the two life, which if you're in a situation to do that is probably worthwhile. Um it's just it seems like a very interesting way to just be able to deal with your opponent's biggest threats and still develop your own board state at the same time. Well, another thing I want to point out is that that passive ability says 
if the Wanderer entered the battlefield this turn, not if you cast it. And so if you can find a way to like flicker it or somehow uh, put it onto your side of the battlefield on your opponent's turn in some other way, you can activate that ability again. That's completely true, yes. I And I love that. I think it's so cool. You could Because they could attack into the Wanderer if you already have had it around for a turn or whatever. And if you can flicker it, for example, then now all of a sudden you blank the attack, you fog their turn, and you can activate one of these abilities again and have all these advantages that you've already been talking about. Yes, that's that's completely true. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, I really love this card, even though I don't really play this style of deck very often that you're talking about with control and things like that. Um, but I want to see how people apply this card in all kinds of formats. Absolutely, yes. The last interesting thing about this card that is sort of characteristic of all the Wanderer cards is that it doesn't have a Planeswalker type. Yeah. It's just Legendary Planeswalker blank space. Nothing else. We don't actually know her identity yet. I mean, we well, tech- we, we know we that she do. is the Emperor of Kamigawa, but even throughout all the web fiction, they have never said what her name, name was. Is, yeah. So that's interesting. But the reason I bring it up is because this set is actually chock full of weird type lines. It's very true. There's some never before seen type lines in Magic's history. Um, specifically, what we're talking about is these the new uh, keyword ability called reconfigure. Cards that have this ability are creatures, um, artifacts, and equipment. Uh, artifact equipment, right? And yes. Um, and so you end up with weird type lines like the one on the reality chip that says legendary creature artifact equipment jellyfish. Yes. Oh, what a mouthful. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I hope that this was the card that all of the commander jellyfish uh, tribal folks have been asking for. Yes. Uh, but, but I somehow kind of doubt it because it's pretty weird. It is pretty weird, but it's so cool. <laughs> the reason that I think it's worth bringing up um, is partially because all of those words are going to have unique applications depending on uh, the format they're in and, and, and which one of them you really kind of want to uh, to take advantage of, right? Yeah. Should we explain what Reconfigure does? We should. So I'll, I'll start by reading the reality chip. Okay. So it's one and a blue for a zero four legendary artifact creature equipment jellyfish. As long as the reality chip is attached to a creature, you may play lands and cast spells from the top of your library. Sort of a uh, future site. Yeah, it ability. is the text on future site. And now reconfigure is two and a blue. Um, that's the reconfigure cost, two and a blue. Attach this card to target creature you control or unattach from a creature. Reconfigure only as a sorcery while attached this isn't a creature. So it's sort of like an equip cost, right? The reconfigure yes. cost works almost identically to equip with the added ability that you can unequip. Yes. By paying the reconfigure cost. But other than that, it plays out kind of like a bestow card. Yes. This is a conversation that we've had. This is like the best bestow will, has been and will probably ever be. Yeah. I liked bestow. I think it's an interesting uh, mechanic. And the weirdness of it lets you uh, do some crazy things if you want, if you work around it. Yeah, I agree. Bestow it was a really cool mechanic for me. I just also, like, 
I acknowledge that it was not very strong. <laughs> That's true. That's the biggest issue. And honestly, I don't really feel like Reconfigure has that problem. I I can definitely agree with that. Like, I don't think that on their own, the Reconfigure cards are going to be meta-breaking, de- meta-defining, anything like that. But I do think they're very, very strong. Sort of on a uh, case-by-case basis. And yes. uh, the... The pattern that I'm seeing is that the rare ones in this set are really strong. Yes, the three rares of the reconfigure cards that we've seen so far are very, very powerful. One of them being the reality chip. Right. Uh, I want to talk about these in a, sort of a general sense with you because it's they're just a cool conversation. But let me read the other two cards really fast before we do. Yes. The other two rares, that is. So the red one is Lizard Blades which is literally just like the name of the card. That feels weird a little bit, but... It sure is. But yeah, so it's it's one in a red for a 1-1 one, one artifact creature equipment lizard with double strike, equipped creature has double strike, and reconfigure two. And then the white one is called Lion Sash, and it's one in a white for a 1-1 one, one artifact creature equipment cat. White exile target card from a graveyard if it was a permanent card, put a 1-1 one, one counter on Lion Sash. Equip, excuse me. Equip creature gets plus 1, plus 1 for each plus 1, plus 1 counter on Lion Sash and reconfigure 2. So again, those they are just creatures as you cast them, but you can equip them or reconfigure them onto a creature and give them whatever ability that it says that it gives them. So I think that these cards are cool. Like you said, they maybe in a vacuum are not crazy powerful in limited i'm sure they'll be good but not uh format breaking but pretty much once you get out of limited maybe not standard maybe yes standard i don't know but once you get into older formats the farther back you go the the crazier these cards get yes specifically i know that in modern you started playing hammer time recently i did good friend a couple good friends of mine that i might not be talking to right now bought me some stoneforge mystics so one uh, thing led to another. Yeah. What are you going to do with Stoneforge Mystics uh, other than throw, throw hammers at people? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these cards, they are equipment, right? They are equipment, yes. And that means that they can be tutored with Stoneforge Mystics. They certainly can. And on top of that, they can be put into the battlefield with Stoneforge Mystic at instant speed, right? Yes. That seems good. Um, you can flash in a blocker, kind of uh, like what classic stoneblade decks would do with batter skull yes um or uh it works with cards like pure steel paladin right where you can activate the reconfigure cost actually maybe not because pure steel paladin specifically says equip cost right yes pure steel paladin gives all equipment um an equipped cost of zero so long as you have metal craft oh then that does work with reconfigure or not with reconfigure, but with but these it, cards with reconfigure because they are equipment, and so they gain an equip cost of zero. Yes. They normally don't have an equip cost, but they do gain one, which is weird and interesting. Interesting. And then when you cast them, you draw a card off the Pure Steel Paladin. Yes. And with Sigarda's Aid, you can cast them all with Flash, right? You can cast them all with Flash because they are equipment, yes. And so when an equipment enters the battlefield with Sigarda's Aid on the board, you can immediately attach it to a creature, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, just want to make that clear. Mm-hmm. And, and technically, we don't have the official rulings on all of these. But 
you know, just using some context clues and some knowledge of how magic has worked before and, and what we sort of expect, this seems really strong in Hammer Time. Yes. Um, in my opinion, especially the, the reality chip, it's probably the strongest of the cycle that we've seen so far. Um, primarily because it feeds into a blue variant of Hammer Time that I've seen deck lists for online. Uh, it'll run tip the a pretty typical mono white hammer time base and then the sideboard will become very interesting where it will have like uh, counter spells and um thieving skydivers uh just all these really interesting blue cards um that that is the flavor that they choose and it makes the reality ship gives you an incentive to actually main deck um, blue cards because it could even potentially replace Luris uh, if you were trying to play a grindier matchup. Does the reality chip cost three? Is that what we said? No, the reality chip costs two. Oh, dear me. So you, you could run it with Luris. You could run it with or replace Luris with. Uh, either way, you can just generate ridiculous card advantage. Not that that's necessarily what Hammer Time's trying to do in the first place. But, but like, why not just make it a little bit more resilient, right? Yeah, it's like, why not just when your opponent is playing their um, lantern control deck, just kill them a little faster? Oh, goodness. Well, and the white and red ones are actually also relevant for this conversation, I think, because they could potentially have a home. That white one, people have made people have made the comparison to scavenging ooze. Yes, it's like scavenging ooze. It's different. It doesn't gain you the life, which may or may not be relevant, but it hits anything, which is very relevant. And it synergizes phenomenally with the rest of the deck. Like we said, you could cast it with Flash, with Sigardazade. You can tutor it with Stoneforge Mystic. Like that's a, a scavenging ooze that you could tutor with Stoneforge Mystic that you already want to tutor your other things is amazing. Yeah. Um, and then you can also, anyway, equip it over and different things. You can draw cards with it with Pure Steel Paladin. Basically, this card, I know that you said that Reality Chip is probably the best, and I'm probably willing to agree with you on that, but the white one seems really good as well. Yeah, I, like, I'm not, if the Reality Chip is the best, the, um, the Lion Cloak? Um, lion Sash. Lion Sash um, is easily the second best of the, um... Reconfigure, reconfigure equipment that we've seen so far just because it's so versatile you could even run it as a one of in the main board and if you end up needing to hate out some graveyard deck which is fairly common right now in modern yeah i'm me having flashbacks to my most recent modern experiences getting um just destroyed unfortunately by some bad draws and a very good um living end deck <laughs> yeah well i mean who knows if this solves that problem, but it definitely hedges against it. Oh, it certainly, yes. And, I mean, I don't mean to continue like this hype train, but the red one is not actually bad either. The red one is not bad at all. Um, I think it's the least interesting because it's just, hey, here's double strike, but double strike is not a weak mechanic. Especially not in hammer time. Where you're giving something plus 10 plus 10. Because the other thing that we actually didn't mention about all this is these are all creatures in addition to this. Yeah. Because what's a is is it an issue in Hammer Time to like get your board wiped and not have creatures? Sometimes I, maybe. Like I guess it depends on whether or not you've got uh, your friendly neighborhood Ink Moth Nexus or not. Fair. But um, yeah, if Hammer Time commits so much to the board so fast that if you get your board wiped, you're kind of just out of luck. Whereas with these, and I don't know how exactly how this is going to work, but with Bestow, if the creature was 
or if the bestow creature was attached as an aura and the creature it was attached to died, it comes back or not comes back, but it just it, turns into a creature. Yeah. It falls off and turns into a creature. And the way this is worded where it says when it's attached to something, it's not a creature. leads me to believe that it works the same way. Like if you're, if you have your reality chip equipped or attached to a Memnite and the Memnite dies, it just becomes the creature, the zero four that can then have a hammer attached to it. Yes. <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. That seems really good to me. I think that this is sort of an incidental thing that also happens to be really good in this specific deck. Yes. I can't imagine that these cards see a lot of play in modern, specifically outside of this uh, application. Maybe, I don't know if affinity or other sort of like artifact uh, artifact themed decks want to run one or a couple of these or something like that. But, it seems to me like hammer time is really the place. Definitely. Like maybe there's application for the reality chip in affinity where you just, instead of putting your whole deck hand on the battlefield, you'd put your whole deck on the battlefield. Sure. Why but not? like y- you're, you're fine. <laughs> sure. Like it's not quite as good, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting and will probably hopefully spice up the, the meta a little bit. Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't make hammer time broken uh, because that, I think it would be sad to lose that deck out of the meta. I think so, too. Stuff. It's such, it's just such a unique deck that it would be very sad to lose it. Right. Anyways, that's that's sort of me gushing about the about Reconfigure. It seems like a very strong mechanic, um, especially because they pushed it a little harder than Bestow. Yes. So while we were on the subject of funny type lines, there's also a cycle of cards we've only seen one of so far, but has a potentially confusing type line issue. Uh, yes. So it is a returning um, theme from original Kamigawa and it's shrines. Um, but the new flair on shrines this time around is that the shrines, at least the one we've seen so far and presumably the rest are creatures, which is cool. Like uh, they are the, the old shrines were legendary creatures. And similarly, these, these ones, seem to also be or sorry they weren't legendary creatures they were legendary enchantments and it seems like these new ones are also going to be legendary enchantment creatures now but so they can be your commanders and you can uh, you know have all of the the fun with legendary creatures that people love to have but also they have the subtype shrine yes so it's something that i have personally been confused with is um creature types versus other permanent types because there are cards like Arcane Adaptation that say, choose a creature type, and then all of your creatures have that type. And I think, well, can you just say Shrine? And I think that this will make it even more confusing. Um, Because Shrine is now a subtype that appears on a creature. Yeah, Shrine is a subtype of an enchantment that appears on a creature that has no creature type. Right. And I think the no creature type is the weirdest part. Yes. But for clarification, Shrine is not a creature type. It is an enchantment subtype. Yes. Great. Um, that's kind of all I want to say about these. <laughs> I, unless, do you have any other thoughts about this card specifically? Um, I mean, it's just, I think it's better than the original White Shrine. The, um, it, do you want to read it for us? Uh, yeah. So it's a three generic, one white, uh, one three with a vigilance that says, at the beginning of your end step, you may pay one. If you do, create... W- uh, a 1-1 one, one colorless spirit creature token for each shrine you control. For reference, uh, the former shrine that we had in white 
um, was also four mana, the same cost, and gained two at your upkeep, gained two life for each shrine that you control, which isn't bad, but it's not building a board state. Sure. One thing that I think is interesting about that, well, we've actually had two cycles of shrines. There was one from original Kamigawa and one from Corset 2021 or something like that, 2020 or something. Oh, um, yeah. And that one was similarly not good. It was like one white, uh, and you could, it had an activated ability so that you could tap something for like six or seven mana or something, and it cost less for each shrine you controlled. Yes. The thing that I want to bring up about this is that each of these shrines have had abilities that activate at different times, which is kind of funny. I don't know if that was like intentional or just sort of like a thing that happened when they were making these shrines. But like you said, the originals triggered on upkeep. The corset ones triggered on main phase or had activated abilities that you could activate any time. And this one, we don't know about the rest, but this one specifically um, triggers on the end step. So kind of weird. But like you said, this is probably the strongest white shrine we've had so far. Yes. Um, it also can be tutored by uh, Sanctum of All, uh, which goes against shrines. And so I wonder if we might see another five-color shrine, but this one as a legendary creature, so that you could have like a, a, an official proper shrine tribal deck. Yes. Because um, so far, Sisse is the most common way to do that, and it works just fine, but it'd be cool to have a shrine. Yes, it would be cool to have a shrine commander. Um, I've wanted to build shrines for a very long time, and Sisse is like the only way to do it consistently. It's You almost always want it to be five color because there are, what, with this new cycle, like 15, 16 shrines. Yeah, yeah 15, 16. Um, and it's just not enough to build a, a consistent deck with, at least not yet. Well, the unfortunate thing about Sisse is that she makes it too consistent, right? You can always get the shrines in the order that you want to get them in. Um, and I can, I feel like they just like kind of play out the same way every time because it, it made shrines playable, but also took away the variance. Yes, it created just a very um, linear um, play pattern. Yeah. It was just always the same. Um, that's a really good point, yeah. That's all I really have to say about the shrines. I'm excited to see the rest of the cycle. This one seems fine, and that's kind of it. Yeah. Sounds, yep. <laughs> so uh, the next big sort of like elephant in the room about this set that we've seen so far are the channel lands. Yes. Channel is a returning mechanic. It's appeared on, I think, one creature, maybe two. I think I think it, there was a handful of creatures that it showed up on in yeah. original Kamigawa. But they, the, the issue is that they just were really forgettable. Yeah, like a lot of the shrine, or sorry, not the shrine, Ooh, excuse me, a lot of the channel creatures from original Kamigawa had abilities that were just very, very narrow. So Right, just, or like, or that you just like wouldn't really care to use or weren't very powerful or things like that. Yeah, exactly. So, but these ones are the opposite of that. Yes. I, I don't, I don't want to speak for all of the cards in the set with channel, but there's a cycle of legendary lands for each color and their abilities are very powerful. Yes, absolutely. Every single one we've seen so far, well, except for the red one, in my opinion, has been really strong. Uh, yeah, I can. I understand why you say that. I do think that the red one probably has a place, maybe as a one of in decks that want 1-1 one, one creatures, which are kind of common in, in, among red decks. But I do hear what you're saying. Let's read them and 
so people can kind of know what we're talking about. Yes. So the Greenland is sort of the uh, the one that everyone's talking about. Yes. It's Boseju who shelters all. No, I'm sorry. That's the original. This is Boseju who endures. It is a legendary land that taps for a green and has channel, one and a green, discard Boseju who endures, destroy target artifact, enchantment, or non-basic land an opponent controls, and that player may search their library for a land card with a basic land type, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary creature you control. So, this is a really powerful ability. It's sort of like naturalize, destroy target artifact or enchantment for one and a green. Yes. But it also hits non-basic lands. Mm-hmm. It does have to be one that your opponents control, and they get to search up a land afterwards. And that land doesn't have to be a basic. It can be a shock, and it enters untapped. It could be a triome. It could be a triome, and it would enter tapped because it's a triome. Right. But yeah, keys in point. Yeah. Um, and this is not a sorcery speed ability. Mm-hmm. And it's not a spell that you cast. It's an activated ability from your hand. So almost impossible to counter. Yep. Um, and could potentially be one mana. Yes. Um, this is good. Yeah, this is very good. I think like the maybe the most important part about this card is um, there is no opportunity cost to playing this card. If he, if your opponent is not playing any artifacts or enchantments and they're playing mono white with all basic planes, it's a land. It's a forest. Right? Yeah. It's like it's a legendary forest, which might be worse. You might have a, a clunky moment where you've got where you draw two of them. But but even then, this ability makes it so that's not even really a cost, um, unless your opponent just has zero targets on the board. Yes, which is unlikely. But but yeah, you can still uh, have, I mean, as many of, as four in in your deck. Probably you probably don't run four, but one is a free roll. Just run it because it's great. Two is still kind of a free roll because worst case scenario, you discard it. I yeah. guess worst case scenario gets stuck in your hand. But second worst case scenario, you just discard it and blow up one of their stuff. Yeah. Uh, three is maybe not even unreasonable for some decks. Or some metas, I guess. It probably depends. Yeah. But like, I see this seeing tons of play in Commander, tons of play in Modern, Legacy, Vintage. Maybe. I can't really speak that much to Vintage or Legacy. But I, I imagine that this is like, I hear, you know, legends of these unbelievably powerful artifacts and enchantments and non-basic lands in those formats, this is an answer for all that. Even in Standard, you have Essica's Chariot and other like random enchantments and artifacts. There's a Ranger class that sees a ton of play, just like a bunch of these cards that people run in even in Standard. And so this will be probably the most played card in the set. I 100% agree. I think this is the most powerful card that we've seen so far, and it is unlikely that we will see a card that is more powerful than this. And if we do, I suspect it is in this same cycle. That's fair. Speaking of, we have officially spoiled one other member of this cycle. It's the red one. Um, so Kenzin, Crucible of Defiance. It's a legendary land that taps for red, and then has channel three and a red. Discards to Kenzin, Crucible of De- Defiance. Create two one-one colorless spirit creature tokens. They gain haste until the end of the turn. This ability costs one less to activate for each legendary you control. Legendary creature. So, this is significantly worse than Basaju. Yes. Like, I should be specific. This card, again, is basically a free roll. There's 
there are very few reasons to not run it. Um, even in a worst case scenario when you're, where your opponent has a blood moon or an alpine moon and names this card, like you can always discard it to get value or it's just a mountain, which is That's what it was That's true. Anyway. I didn't realize how you st still get the value through a blood moon. Yeah. Take that, you know, land haters. <laughs> right? Yeah. I've thought about modern specifically with Buseju being just Jun's probably favorite way ever to blow up a blood moon. Yeah, seriously. Or uh, Tron. Run it in green Tron. Yeah. Um, that being said, it also is a really great counter against Tron. Also true. Um, back to the red land, though. Uh, yeah, it's significantly worse uh, just because it's not a free roll removal spell. It's not a sideboard piece that you are now allowed to run in your main board. But there's still value. Like, it's not a bad card. It's just when you compare it to Buseju... It looks pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, it probably sees a home in like Burn or some of those uh, fancy Indomitable Creativity decks. Yeah. Um, which is great, but you're right. It is significantly worse than Buseju. Those are the only ones that we have spoiled so far, but I'm sure we will have more to say about this cycle. Yeah. I think that this cycle, because again, the opportunity cost is so low, there will be plenty there will be volumes to say about it so uh before we get to like individual cards there is an another cycle that i want to touch on that is again not finished but we have two pieces that are really interesting and it's a cycle that the name is march of something yes for example the white one is called march of otherworldly light it is x and a white for an instant as an additional cost to cast this spell, you may exile any number of white cards from your hand. This spell costs two less to cast for each card exiled this way. And then the ability is exile target artifact, creature, or enchantment with mana value X or less. So basically, you can pitch cards from your hand to uh, increase the value of X. Yes. Um, this card specifically is really good, probably in a lot of formats, but specifically I'm thinking again, modern. Yes. Uh, modern seems to be one of the more popular ways to play Magic, so it's one of the things we're talking about the most. But Also one of the ways that we play Magic the one most. One of the ways that we play Magic the most, yes. Um, yeah, this card, like, it just, it cannot be bad, right? Uh, anyway, any card that allows you to cheat on a mana cost in itself is going to be good. Um, if we look at Solitude, which is a comparable probably better version of this ability but um you see that that card is very expensive it's very played in modern i think it's like 50 dollars a copy or more now right um it just it, any deck that's playing white will be run running solitude or will have to find a very good reason to not run solitude this card similar like you say is a removal spell like solitude um and it can fairly easily get rid of a lot of threats, right? Like, if you uh, pitch one card and pay a white, that means X equals two, so you can exile, target artifact, creature, or enchantment with CMC two or less, which is a lot of things in modern. Yeah. Um, you can't hit Planeswalkers, notably, um, so you can't kill a Renin Six like that, but you can kill Tarmogoyfs, Bobs, literally anything from Hammer Time except for Luris. Um and like so it's all the like all the creatures from burn all of this low to the ground really aggressive creatures that you see a lot in modern 
if you just cast it for white, though, you can hit Memnite and Ornithopter. Sorry to hate on, on your uh, Hammer Time deck. Uh, uh, it's okay. So much in this episode. <laughs> but also, Urza Saga is an, an enchantment with CNC Zero. Um, you just exile that for one mana at instant speed. Uh, another thing is like the man lands, like um, yeah. Ink Moth Nexus being in Infect and Hammer Time. Uh, you can just yeah. shut it off. Celestial Colonnade, Mutavault, like any of these cards, um, get exiled for one mana at instant speed, which sure, Path to Exile can already do, but you can't pay into Path to Exile to be able to um, exile a bigger artifact or enchantment. Um, so anyways, I think that this card is, is amazing in modern specifically. Um, I'm sure it'll see play in other formats. The biggest issue that I see with this card though, is there's already an, a, a removal spell in modern and older formats that costs X and a white that's competing with this card. And that's prismatic ending. Yes. And there are pros and cons to this card versus that one, because that one can get any permanent, uh, with CMC, equal to or less than the number of colors you spent to cast it. So you can hit Planeswalkers, for example. Um, but it maxes out at five because you can't spend more than five colors on Prismatic Ending. Whereas this, if you have the cards in hand or the man the lands, because you don't have to pitch the cards to activate or to, to add to the X cost, you could just pay six mana out of the lands on your battlefield and exile a five drop, which uh, is pretty good. Because you could also, I mean, you could you can mix and match, right? You can exile cards from your hand. You can uh, add mana to it and have a, a larger variety of responses. You could kill a Karn with that, you know, if you had the, the resources for it. But Yeah. So there's, there's pros and cons for this versus Prismatic Ending or so- Solitude, like you mentioned earlier. Um, but I do expect this to see play because it is really strong. Yes. The red one uh, has, like, similar abilities. It's... X and a red for an instant. Um, you can pitch spells from your hand to make it cost two less. And then you exile X cards from the top of your library. You may pay, play up to two of them until the end of your next turn. So sort of like a commune with lava, but you only get two options out of it. Yes. But, but also you can cast it for one mana and still get value theoretically if you're able to pitch out of your hand. Like, it's just... it's. It's got to be strong, especially for, like, any deck that's got, trying to as- assemble a specific combo. Or if you're even just trying to dig through a lock uh, where you can just dig through um, your deck, exile, whatever. Like, if you need a specific card to win the game. A specific response specific or a response, combo or something. Yeah, yeah. then um, you're just allowed to dig through that and because you can cast the spell into your next turn you're not really the spells into your next turn you're not really worried about like spending all of your mana on it you'll probably be okay if like you really are that desperate um yeah there's like it's essentially like paying one red mana to draw two of the best x cards of off the top of your library yeah uh, and pitching the rest of your hand if you have to which if you're trying to assemble that kind of combo you probably don't care that much no um, I could see this being good in like some sort of Kiki Jiki combo deck, maybe even in Storm, um, because you can get like a Gifts Ungiven or uh, Past in Flames or even just a couple rituals that you need. And um, that seems good in Storm. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm imagining for this card as well. 
Yeah. Something I do really appreciate is that you don't have to like select the cards when you exile them. If a situation arises where you have to make different decisions, you can just change your mind. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. I think that this card, the one we mentioned earlier, and the rest of the cycle are probably going to see a lot of play. They seem really flexible and really powerful. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, a couple more cards uh, for this discussion. There's one that I, when I first saw it, I overlooked it. It didn't seem that interesting to me. Um, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized, oh, wow, that is actually really, really strong. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about it. Yes. And that card is Tameshi Reality Architect. It's two and a blue for a 2-3 legendary moonfolk wizard. It says when one or more non-creature permanents are returned to hand, draw a card. This ability triggers only once each turn. And then X and a white, return a land you control to its owner's hand. Return target artifact or enchantment card with mana value X or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Activate only as a sorcery. So this card also seems strong in modern. I'm sure it'll see play in commander. It's kind of a compelling Moonfolk commander. It'll probably see play in like historic, maybe in standard. Who knows? I don't know what they can really abuse with it in those formats. But in modern, there is already a package that this fits into really nice and neatly. And I think that this sort of takes it to another level. And what I'm specifically referring to is the Dragon's Rage Channeler, um, Mishra's Bobble. Bobble, Urza's Saga package just think about that for a second because the activated ability returns a land to your hand which could be urza saga maybe if you need to save it or maybe if you need uh just you want to activate some of the earlier abilities an additional time or maybe in response to the the third um ability counter going on uh so you might just keep keep looping it um then that draws you a card from tameshi's first ability because you bounce a card to your hand. And then you could do it for one white mana and just get a Mishra's Bobble back. That's true. That you can activate and draw a card with. Um, or you could return a different land and get the Urza Saga that you just lost back to your hand or back to the battlefield. Draw a card, get all these abilities, shenanigans. Dragon's Rage Channeler just happens to be good with those other two cards. But sure, why not throw that in there? Now we're looking at a Jeskai deck. Um, the only issue that I see with this card is that it costs three mana, so you would have to lose Luris. That is quite the downside. Um, but realistically, if Luris were to ever get banned in Modern, which is something a lot of people expected in the most recent ban and restriction announcement, um, this could be a pretty clever solution to have a similar deck list. And honestly, if someone sat across the table from me and didn't reveal Luris, but showed that they had a Tameshi later on in the game, I would not look twice. I wouldn't think that they were making a bad decision necessarily because that is a ton of value. Yeah, it can generate value potentially faster than Luris, which is saying something, really. The only thing that this doesn't have that Luris does have is the consistency, right? You just yeah. don't start with it in your hand like you do with Luris. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure there are other applications for this. You can probably find like maybe in affinity or, you know, something, some sort of deck that uses a lot of artifacts or enchantments even maybe you run it in like Bant Enchantress or something like that. But it just, I wanted to bring it up because this card seems insane to me. 
a comparison that I have kind of thought of. It's different, but does a s- accomplishes a similar similar goal is um hannah ship's navigator oh really old card people love playing it as their commander as a more casual sort of um artifact or enchantment commander that gets things back from your graveyard in azorius which this card does even more aggressively yeah interesting i would i wonder if there are people out there porting over their uh their tameshi decks you know over top of yeah tameshi instead of hannah is what i'm trying to say Potentially, yes. I think that it opens up to um, the deck to some more like competitive lines of play. I don't know if it's going to be like very vi- like that competitive, like competitive enough to be CEDH. I expect not, but I could also be wrong. Sure. And it, I, there's probably some like Crook Clan Ironworks type lines you can get into. Yeah, I think that my my first thought was. You can just get back a jeweled lotus from your graveyard for one white. For one white That's seems pretty a good, good point. Or any mocks or mana crypt or anything like that. Okay, it might it might actually be really good. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I really love about it is that this return a land to your hand ability was the characteristic Moonfolk ability from original Kamigawa. I really liked that too. I I so far it's the only Moonfolk that has that ability, but it's. I really love the callback to just like the older Moonfolk. It's also a wizard, um, you know, on the commander precon. The one of the base commanders is a Moonfolk pilot, which is a very cool flair, like a new because we are entering into the cyberpunk. But it's cool to see a wizard practicing the old ways of the Moonfolk. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the commander decks though, because maybe we should finish our discussion talking about those. Because they haven't spoiled the entire deck lists, but they spoiled the two base commanders uh, from those decks. And so I want to talk about them because they seem really cool. Um, you mentioned the the Moonfolk deck. It's not really a moon, Moonfolk deck, but the commander is a Moonfolk. It is uh, Azorius Vehicles. It's called Buckle Up. And it's led by Katori Pilot Prodigy. One white blue for a two four legendary moonfolk pilot, like you said. Vehicles you control have crew two, and at the beginning of combat on your turn, target artifact creature you control gains life leak and vigilance until the end of the turn. So basically, Kotori, two power, she can crew anything because all she gives all vehicles crew two, which is really cool. Yeah, it's a very cool like flavor thing because she is such a good good pilot she can pilot anything by herself yeah. sky sovereign she's got it parhelion too easy yeah i that is cool um i'm sure we'll see probably some reprints of some of these cards in this deck most likely obviously we don't know we don't go out and sell off your sky sovereigns or whatever but but yeah would that'll be cool i also kind of like the azorius vehicles thing like we've seen boros vehicles in the past in Kaladesh and things like that. But I kind of like the Azorius flair. Yeah. It's, it's a very new like way to build the deck um, just with a lot more options. Um, Cause if we see even like the new Tezzeret uh, turns your vehicles into creatures, um, you can uh, put a pair of scissors, the um, insult artifact on whatever you'd like. Uh, it's just, even if you can't crew your, your vehicles, it's, it's just a very, like new way to do it yeah i think that'll be fun uh, i'm this probably of the two decks probably the one i'm most interested in 
but the other one is actually also really cool. Um, it is the Gruel uh, modification deck called Upgrades Unleashed. It's led by Chishiro the Shattered Blade, two red-green for a 4-4 legendary snake samurai. When an aura or equipment enters the battlefield under your control, create a 2-2 red spirit creature token with menace. At the beginning of your end step, put a plus one plus one counter on each modified creature you control. And we didn't talk about this, but modified is another new keyword from this set. Um, basically, a modified creature is any creature that is enchanted by an aura, equipped by an equipment, or has a plus one plus one counter on it. Well, or any kind of counter, like a death oh, touch counter yeah, or a flying you. counter. Yes. You're right about that. Any counter um, counts as a modification. So this card reads extremely chaotically. Yes. It's a snake samurai that makes spirits. Um, it wants you to play auras and equipment or or counters, which is sort of typically associated with Voltron strategies, which is a one creature that goes really tall, but it makes tokens and wants you to build up those tokens. Yeah, it wants you to go wide with a... With a typically go tall strategy. Yes. It's it's really odd. However, I it's growing on me. When I first saw it, I, I just thought, okay, whatever, I guess I'll get the Azorius deck. But the idea of Gruul auras is kind of cool. You, there's a lot of options in like green uh, and red for that matter. But like green has cool like defensive auras or um, offensive auras or just like lots of like varied options. And red is kind of does auras in its own like aggressive way. Um, a lot of like fire breathing effects or things like that. Haste enablers, things. But I think... I don't know of a commander other than Earl the Miststalker, who would be built, built very differently from this. Yes. That use, utilizes gruel, um, auras, etc. But I kind of like it. Honestly, I don't hate it. It is pretty chaotic. Um, it gives me the like the feeling of a card that if it's not really cool to build around right now, there's going to be some card in some later set that'll make it really cool to build around yeah just like how sagarda's aid was a card that looked cool until and where it was like there was nothing really that interesting to do with it until colossus hammer happened yeah um i also really think the art is cool because it is a snake samurai with like a like almost molten metal sword i just it's cool like, yeah what can i say about it that's what drew me in i'm like <laughs> and then on top of that it's a strategy that has never really been established before um go wide auras um it's i think it's cool that you can get all of the enchantresses from green i think there's only a, yeah. a few but you can get your card draw through that um it seems to lend itself to um very cheap enchantments which I think is very interesting because the more cheap enchantments you can put out onto the battlefield, the more tokens you get, the more the bigger the board state you can build, which goes right along with Red's style of wheeling to draw cards because if you don't have many cards in hand, you don't care about discarding them. Or the impulse draws even, where if, you're, if you have three one-mana Red enchantments on the top of your deck, you're more than happy to just slam them all immediately. Sure. I, I'm probably going to go over these two cards more thoroughly in my uh, upgrade articles that I write for cardgamebase.com. 
Um, whenever uh, a new commander deck comes out, I'll, I'll write upgrade articles about them. Um, and so I'm looking forward to going more, diving a little bit deeper in depth into these commanders, because both of them seem really cool. Um, for this, for the Gruul commander, my, my, the first card that comes to mind that I think of is Storm Herald. That was from Theros Beyond Death. It's two and a red for a creature. And when it enters the battlefield, you put any number of auras from your graveyard attached to target creature you control. And then yeah, I think you sacrifice them at the end of the turn or something along those lines. But um, it's finally a deck that can use Storm Herald, give it a, a, an appropriate home. Yeah, an appropriate home. So I'm excited about that. The one card that it draws to my mind is, um, I believe it's called Broodkeeper, something to that effect. Um, and it's this red card that I always thought was so interesting and I always wanted to build around, but it was never very good, where it's a creature that um, rewards you by making, I believe, 2-2 two, two dragon creature tokens with fire breathing whenever you play an aura. Oh. Which, it's just some uncommon from some core set that is just so strange to be in red at that time frame i think it was in like maybe yeah from m15 from straight up seven years ago that, that is crazy finally that, has a home and that's exactly what this deck is trying to do so that's super perfect yeah all right well again more on this uh once the official deck lists fine are finally revealed um but stay tuned for that other than that wyatt there are tons of cards in this set that are worth talking about Yes. Um, this was just the first three days, and it was so full of cards. But that's probably just about all the time. In fact, we've gone uh, pretty far over what we normally go on this podcast. But that is okay. The conversation's been really fun. Is there anything else that you want to say kind of before we wrap things up here? Please read Spencer's articles. They're very good. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> Thank you. That was a, a nice little plug. Um, if you do want to contact us about any of these other cards, you can find us on Twitter at GMT underscore cast, uh, or on Instagram under the same name there. Um, you can find me at again underscore penguin on, on Twitter, or dpenguin again on Instagram. Um, Wyatt, do you have any uh, socials you'd like to plug here? Uh, not currently. All right, great. Well, anyways, thanks so much for talking. It's been fun, as always. Um, and until next time, I guess, uh, look out for those spoilers, and we'll have more next week about them.